Hey guys, good evening and welcome to another podcast from Mr. Revolta. Uh, this time focusing on the age of Jackson or uh, the title of your chapter is The Triumph of White Men's Democracy. Kind of take us, taking us from the end of the year of, the, of good feelings, uh, from kind of the election of 1824 through uh, the election of 1840 or so. Alright guys, so again, the chapter is kind of focusing on the ascension of Andrew Jackson right after his immense popularity from the War of 1812 and his kind of domination of the Democratic-Republican right now and its transition to just the Democratic Party and him and Van Buren being pretty central figures in modernizing the party and uh, also all the controversial kind of decisions he'll make, right, whether it be Indian removal, challenging the Supreme Court. Um, you know, the controversy with South Carolina. Uh, so those are, those are some of the big issues that you know, we'll be discussing now pretty briefly. All right, guys, so the big thing kind of the chapter expresses early on is the uh, notion of kind of democracy, right, and more and more people being a part of the process. Uh, so things like uh, the uh, self-made man being the hero, right, Jackson kind of embodying that uh, from his pretty obscure uh, kind of origins to being a great planner and, of course, military leader and eventually president of the United States. So it kind of seemed like a time where anything was possible, especially for those Americans who had rights and could vote. And, uh, you know, people kind of bought into that, right, that they uh, it was a good time. And so I sometimes called either the age of Jackson or age of democracy. Uh, the key thing uh, going on overall is what we call equality of opportunity, right? So you know, there's still a lot of inequalities based on race, based on uh, ethnicity and different things. But, um, you know, in general, right, for like uh, for similar entities and ethnicities, you had equality of opportunity, if nothing else. All right, guys, so some of the things going on also was uh, uh, how things, uh, whether it be literature, plays, those things were widely available to the public and appealed to many Americans, right? Uh, we had a bunch of different things with popular literature, right, ranging from um, people like Edgar Allan Poe and his uh, pretty kind of gothic horror, right, uh, poetry and other things, to people like Ralph Waldo Emerson, is his transcendentalism, uh, to Walt Whitman, the poet, uh, as well as people like Hawthorne, right, and his, uh, you know, very serious writing, especially based in New England. Uh, so, and a lot of it is kind of reflecting um, some of the ideals of the time period, right? It's accessible to most people because, again, Americans tend to have a higher literacy rate than some of the other societies. And, uh, you know, these are just kind of some of the key things going on. Uh, artwork reflecting kind of everyday life, right? Very much kind of in the mode of that uh, democracy and that uh, democratic spirit. All right, guys, uh, some of the other things going on are the uh, emergence of, or the, sorry, uh, most states adopting universal white male suffrage, right? Or basically granting the right to vote to all adult males, right? getting rid of that property requirement that's been there, you know, since way early in the colonial period. Then we have the emergence of uh, a party system, especially under Van Buren, where you have all these sorts of methods, whether it be barbecues, rallies, things like that, to kind of get the voter participation up, which they did a really good job of, uh, getting it to up around 80%, especially in the presidential elections. So again, very, very high voter turnout. People were very active in politics during that time. All right, guys, some of the other kind of things going on is the um, emergence of Jackson in the election of 1824. Uh, so here we have a five-way race right between a lot of major candidates. The top three in the end are going to be uh, Andrew Jackson, John Quincy Adams, who was Secretary of State under Monroe, and then uh, a guy named William Crawford. So the vote is overall too close to call. Jackson does get the most electoral votes, but not enough to take the election. So it goes to the House of Representatives. Now once it gets there, 
uh, it you know, gets highly political, uh, to say the least, and Adams is able to win the support of the House of Representatives with Henry Clay's support, right? Henry Clay, again, that war hawk from Kentucky, a member of the House. Uh, again, once that's done, right, we have the charges of what's called the corrupt bargain between Clay and Adams. So Adams, now being the president, is going to appoint Clay to be his secretary of state. So the, uh, you know, uh, the sympathizers of Jackson, his party, and many people believe he should have won that election, is going to be kind of the fuel they need to really mobilize his campaign uh, for the next uh, presidential election, 1828. Uh, some of the key things for Jack, for Adams, sorry, as president, he's only a one-term president. Tariff kind of becomes a big deal uh, in, in eventually producing the what's known as the Tariff of Abominations in 1828. This will be the one that gets Carolina so upset later on. But uh, again, not, not too much of an effective presidency for him, right? He has all that stuff lingering from the questionable election and again, only a one-term president for John Quincy Adams. All right, so the key thing later on is going to be in this new election of 1828 is going to be uh, the emergence of those new techniques, like I said, parades, picnics, rallies, barbecues, those things, and also a pretty ugly campaign overall because of the mudslinging, right, the personal attacks on both sides. Um, you know, Jackson's people will portray him as a man of the people, a true kind of uh, sign of, you know, what America does give everybody a chance and a chance for greatness, and that's what Jackson is able to achieve. Uh, his stance on Indians is really important, right? The, calling for the removal from the east coast of the eastern portion of the U.S. And then again, remember the way they're both mudslinging at each other is kind of by attacking the background of each uh, wife. Uh, for Adams, it had to do with her questionable kind of birth. Uh, and for Mrs. Uh, Jackson, it had to do with the problem of her never ending her first marriage officially. Uh, key things later on, again, Jackson kind of wins it fairly easily. Uh, he creates and defends what's called the spoil system, right? This is the practice, practice of an incoming president kind of appointing hundreds, if not thousands, of jobs within the federal government. And again, this is not uncommon. This happened since, you know, the beginning, the earliest presidencies. But he's the first one to kind of point out that it's a democratic sort of practice, right? Some people charge this kind of corruption and bias. And, you know, it is in a way. But for Jackson, you know, that he was chosen by the people. And he thought um, since the people mandated him or chose him, he deserves the right to appoint people to those positions who he trusts and who he believes will do a good job. In addition to that, right, in about 1829 or so, we have what's called the Peggy Eden Affair. Um, and so what happens here is the newlywed or the new wife of the Secretary of War, John Eaton, is a lady named Peggy Eaton. And she has a little bit of a kind of a questionable reputation, questionable reputation. And she's very much mistreated and maligned by the other kind of first wives of the cabinet. And it gets to the point where you know, again, this, you, you might think, what does this have to do anything with U.S. history? Well, the key thing is the aftermath of that, right? Is that most of his cabinet resigns and it leads to a falling out between him and John Calhoun, which will have ramifications down the road. And it secures kind of Martin Van Buren being his right-hand man and eventually, of course, the next president once Jackson calls it quits. Uh, again, as far as Indian removal is concerned, right, uh, it, it's kind of adopted from previous administrations. Uh, again, Jackson sides with the states, right? And of course, the best example of that being that Worcester versus Georgia case where the Cherokee Army kind of wins. But again, the culmination of all these efforts is the 1838, um, you know, U.S. Army forcing the Cherokees out west, right? On what we call the Trail of Tears, where about 25% of their numbers perished due to harsh conditions and the environment. And eventually they relocate to Oklahoma. Uh, good. Next kind of drama, right? Nothing short of that, or nothing but drama, it seems like, with Jackson, is what we call the nullification crisis. This is all reaction to the 1828 tariff, which uh, basically, again, increases the tax on imports. 
And again, a lot of southern states are opposed to this because they relied on foreign goods for a lot of their finished goods, their manufactured goods. So for them, it just made life more expensive, right? And uh, they believe they should not have to follow the law. That's why it's called nullify. Basically, the right of an individual state to just set aside the law. They don't have to follow it if it uh, can be to their detriment or can hurt them. So again, here you have the feud highlighted between Jackson and Calhoun, right? Uh, his former vice president and the, uh, you know, kind of building animosity between both sides. Uh, so again, the key thing here and what goes on eventually is the uh, Carolina again nullifying the law or the tariff of 1832, then Jackson threatening to send the army, and in the end, uh, the compromise is uh, the tariff will be passed at lower rates in 1833, and at the same time, Congress does give uh, Jackson the authority to use the military to enforce federal law. So it kind of secures the federal government as being the ultimate um, you know, power later on, but yet concedes a little bit to South Carolina by lowering the tariff. So again, it's the first big showdown between the state and the federal government, and again, a hint at what's to come later on, right, with the Civil War and some of the things leading up to that. All right, guys, uh, the last controversy uh, to talk about from Chapter 10 is the Bank War and the rise of the Second Party System. So the Bank War is a good analogy and kind of dominates the second term of Andrew Jackson. Uh, also, it's a key part of leading to the formation of the Whigs, right, which are going to be the next kind of big party in the U.S. political system. So the key thing here is the bank gets kind of a bad reputation and is blamed for, especially in certain parts of the country, for the 1819 Depression or panic. And in 1823, we have a new bank president that's coming in, a guy named Nicholas Biddle, who's extremely intelligent and hopefully to, you know, restore the bank, not restore it, but just kind of keep it going and keep it prosperous. Uh, the tough thing kind of overall is the view of the bank is kind of benefit, benefiting the rich and it makes it an easy target, especially later on for Jackson. So if there's one misstep that Nicholas Biddle makes, right, it's applying early to try to get a renewal of that charter, right, that sort of contract that gives the bank right to exist. And, uh, you know, in the end, that passes through Congress fairly quickly. But Jackson vetoes that and uh, claims the bank is unconstitutional. So he defends the veto on the grounds that, hey, uh, you know, this, this is a corrupt kind of system, right? Benefits the rich, should not exist. And, you know, in the end, when he gets reelected, that's kind of the fuel he needs to make sure that the end, uh, you know, the end is near for the bank. So how he destroys it overall is by eventually removing those deposits, right? The money from the bank and instead moving that money to what are called his state or pet banks all over the country. And then Boodle, Biddle reacts to that, sorry, not Boodle, Biddle, he reacts to that by kind of causing a recession, by calling in debts, and then shifting blame to Jackson, but it kind of backfires, and the bank is uh, you know, pretty much done at this point. Um, again, the key thing here, and the calls in the Congress, you know, people like Henry Clay, very fed up with Andrew Jackson's power. So here's where the Whig kind of mobilization really begins, and his depiction as a king, right, as sort of a dictator, someone who's abusing his power, really takes off. So the Whigs are going to be made up of a coalition from, you know, drawn out from this bank war and from previous efforts. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of made up of all the Jackson haters, right? All the controversial decisions he's made. He's alienated a lot of people. And finally, they're organizing kind of mountain defense against him. Uh, some of the kind of other things going on are the release of the Species Circular, right? Which leads to the Panic of 1837. This is when Jackson demands uh, only hard currency for uh, the sale of public lands. This and the combination of the only instability created by the bank war and other factors, you know, you know, international trade and other things lead to that depression or panic of 1837. So it's this situation, right, this really ugly situation where Martin Van Buren comes in as Jackson's handpicked successor. 
and uh, does not have a good time at all as president. Only one term. And especially when you come in right when the depression hits, it's not going to go well. On top of that, Van Buren was, uh, in a lot of ways, personally, the kind of total opposite of Jackson. Uh, you know, came from a fairly wealthy family in New York. And when it comes down to it, sort of didn't have that same charisma that Jackson had to kind of lead the Democrats. And, you know, in a way, maybe Van Buren was better working behind the scenes and uh, you know, not so much in the limelight like Jackson was used to. Uh, the next election, that's right, sorry, the uh, Whigs uh, keep them uh, all this time are kind of working on organization, right? Working on choosing candidates for the 1840 election. And they finally find kind of their man with William Henry Harrison. And what they're going to do is kind of out Jackson, the Democrats, basically. And they're going to make, uh, you know, sort of like their own version of uh, Jackson with William Henry Harrison. He's a military man, a common man. They push that very much in the ad campaigns and the campaign all over the country. And then they also appeal to states' rights people by choosing John Tyler as his run, running mate. So, you know, trying to appeal as many people as possible and play that game. And so William Henry Harrison takes it pretty easily over uh, uh, Martin Van Meer, especially in the electoral vote. And uh, William Henry Harrison will be our next president of the United States. So it shows that, you know, this party that didn't exist a few years ago is not created because of all the ugly sentiment towards Andrew Jackson and his policies has now won the election. Uh, again, keep thinking, this is kind of a sad story, right? Because William Henry Harrison doesn't live too long. He's only president about a month or so before he passes away. And John Tyler takes over as president. But people see this as a sign of the strength of the American political system. The fact that this party rose up and gained prominence so quickly. Um, you know, some last things to notice are the kind of divisions of the two groups, right? Whigs tend to be industrialist merchants or uh, you know, Protestant evangelicals mainly from the East Coast, uh, business interests, things like that. Democrats tend to be from the South and West, small farmers, and more likely to be Catholic and so forth. Uh, good. All right, guys, so that uh, covers as quickly as I could anyway, uh, most of chapter 10. Of course, you have your packets, right? You have your notes from class. Uh, hope that helps, and have a good night.